Apple presents Meet the Musician at the Apple Store. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Mike Jones, and tonight's guest, Jose James. Hello, hello. What's up, man? Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, I'm Mike Jones. It says, tr oh, it's trum Trumpet and Bone. Thought it was our nicknames for tonight. Thought you was Trump and I was Bone. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, Jose James. How y'all doing? Thanks for coming out. Appreciate it. So we're going to take a little, uh, couple minutes just to kind of get to know you. I mean, to really get to know you really is to hear your music and jam, but uh, there's some real primary kind of warm-up kind of thing going on. So let's start kind of, well, you know what? You, who are you going for in the Super Bowl? <laughs> Actually, during the Super Bowl, I tweeted about my album. I didn't, I didn't watch it at all. I'm not a sports fan, like not even a little bit. But I was at the 1987 World Series in Minneapolis, Game 4, which we won, which was awesome. Minneapolis. There it is, there it is, there it is. So I'm going to ask you more about the Super Bowl a little bit later. There's a reason for my question. Um, so... Let's start at the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about how you got started um, in music, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of your musical influences. Well, I am from Minneapolis, and uh, the first music I remember hearing was Billie Holiday when I was a kid, like three or four. It's like my, one of my earliest memories. I remember pulling out the vinyl and just looking at her face and the flower, and I don't know, I don't know why it spoke to me, but I feel like her voice has been with me my whole life. And, um, of course, being from Minneapolis, Prince was a huge, he was just everywhere. You just couldn't avoid him. I got Purple Rain on vinyl when I was too young to probably even be listening to that album. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, it, it really changed my life in a way of um, having somebody from your hometown be that big. Uh, I don't know if anybody else is from the Midwest, but there's a certain feeling you have. You're not from LA, you're not from New York, you kind of feel isolated. And um, this was pre-internet too, so albums really meant a lot. And of course, Michael Jackson was killing everybody. And from that point, I just got into hip hop, like when I was like 14. And that's when I really started buying a lot of music and just being excited about music. Because it seemed like every week, every month, there would be like a new classic album dropping, Black Star. Good time for music, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So this is a question that most musicians hate to ask, but if you had to, and I ask it for a reason, because I know you have a particular point of view about this. Um, so here goes. How would you define your style of music? Um, I mean, right now I'd say I'm an artist who was trained in jazz, who combines uh, blues, like I'd say black American music, you know, blues, gospel, soul, R&B, jazz, um, in, a, in a contemporary way. So I, I think on this particular album, I think there's equal parts of, of all these different styles plus um, singer-songwriter. So really, you know, I just say it's good music. That's, that's the only thing I can say. But if, if I had to sort of pick two genres for this album, I'd, I'd say it's in between jazz and R&B. So the reason I ask is, you know, as a musician, at least this is when I've spoken to other musicians, there is the, the industry wants to define you so they know where to put you, you know, on the shelf or in the iTunes, what to look you up under. And then there are musicians who like to create music for the sake of creating their art and their craft. 
Um, so some people feel real particular about and sensitive about you know what genre because you're musicians ultimately, right? Um, who were some of your biggest early influences that defined sort of your early sound? Because this is your fourth album. Or yeah, so. this is my fourth album. I, I like to call it my second album as an artist though because my first album, The Dreamer, was made without a producer. I produced it. And this is my second album that I made without a producer. So um, this is really like my statement coming from me. But early influences, Marvin Gaye just hit really early. And it's funny because I kind of like got into certain styles of music like jazz or, or Motown. And then certain artists really, I don't know, lifted me out of it. Like John Coltrane lifted me out of jazz in a way. Because to me, he transcended the genre. Um, to me, there's just there's individuals in each art form, like Michael Jordan, who just transcend what they do to take it to another level of greatness and take you with it. Even if you're not a, ba a basketball fan, everybody knows Michael Jordan and wants to watch him dunk. You know what I mean? That's just the thing. So, um, actually, Bobby McFerrin was a big influence early on, um, and I work with his son Taylor now, which is really dope. And um, he was actually he was artistic director of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra when I lived in Minneapolis. So he was around, I'd see him walking around all the time and um, it, it's just a huge influence in terms of his musical scope, you know, all the kind of different styles that he could put together and the way he used his voice was really influential. Yeah. So you've, now you've collaborated with a, a bunch, a bunch of different folks, like from Giles Peterson producing the first two albums. Um, talk a little bit about some of the other folks who have been that influential that you have collaborated with on this, on this most recent project. Wow, well, there's so many. Um, I mean, first of all, Robert Glasper, you know, who's here in New York, and, uh, you know, he's just such a huge influence on my generation musically as an arranger, as a composer, as a band leader. Um, Pino Palladino, bassist, you know, the number one bassist in the world. Um, he co-produced the album and plays on, on most of the tracks. He plays on nine of the tracks. And it was just crazy working with him, working with Russ Olivado, working with Chris Dave, because that's all of D'Angelo's camp right now. And, you know, Pino would actually be at rehearsals in New York with D'Angelo in the evening, track with us in the day. So it felt really special to sort of be, you know, a part of something that you've admired so long. I've been listening to, you know, Brown Sugar since it came out, Voodoo since it came out. And, um, you know, to sort of like, to sort of get behind the scenes, it's kind of like if you admire a director and then you get to work with his cinematographer and his, you know, all his team. Um, it felt like that, you know, it felt like, oh, this is why that track sounds that way, because Pino plays that way, because Russ tracks that way. Um, Fink is a great songwriter on the album. He works with John Legend a lot. He wrote, uh, co-wrote It's All Over Your Body and uh, No Beginning, No End. Emily King, who's right here in New York, She's a great singer-songwriter. She wrote two songs in the album. Amp Fiddler from Detroit, uh, he wrote, he co-wrote a song. And Hindi Zara, who's a great singer from, yeah, from Morocco. Yeah. That's dope, that's dope. So I know a lot of people who are unfamiliar with, with folks try to use association, you know, to, to make a connection. Um, who do you think you are, I have my own, you know, points of view, but who do you think if you, if you had to say you are most like, sound like, let's just say sound like for the purpose of this discussion. Um, and then who are the, 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 
most commonly folks who are most associated? People say, you know, you sound like... Like vocally or like the concept? Voc vocally. Oh, vocally. That's tough, man. I mean, everybody always says, you know, Gil Scott Heron. Um, and who else did they say? John Lucian, Terry Callier. Um, I don't know if I actually sound... I've never heard anybody that I would say, oh, I sound like that. I think um, in terms of the concept, the closest artist out there right now is probably Curran Bailey Ray, who combines soul and some blues and the pop and all the different things. I really looked up to her in uh, putting together this album because she's one of the few black artists out there I know who are really unafraid to just put it all in one thing and, and to not be kind of hemmed in. And I, I lived in London for like a year as well. And I feel like that's kind of a UK thing that kind of lets you do what you want to do. Well, at least we, that kind of to my next question because you've been all over the world. Um, you know, you've performed here. Um, you're musically, the, the industry that you're in is right here. But where have you been that you've, you've found you've had the widest acceptance? So the, you know, the people not asking you, you know, how do you define yourself, but yeah. just kind of appreciated you know, your music for what it was. Where, where has that been? Funny enough, everywhere except the U.S. Like every country, you know. It's a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, we are really like so focused on it, you know. Um, but it's kind of funny, like, like in Japan, like I'm, I'm leaving on Saturday to go to Japan, and the first time I went record shopping in Japan, they, I went to the jazz section, they have like 30 varieties of jazz. Like it was crazy, you know, it was like, vocal jazz, you know, it was like, you know, club jazz, like house jazz, like traditional jazz, traditional vocal jazz, like it was so specific. Um, but pretty much everywhere that I play, you know, everybody kind of, I, th I think it's because we have a certain kind of history with it, obviously. And it's very, it's very cultural, it's very racial, it's very emotional, so we kind of, I think, in other places, they just enjoy it. They're just like, yeah, it's great music. Oh, he blends this and blends that in here. It's like, well, what is it, you know? But I was really happy that, you know, on iTunes, it is in the jazz section and in the R&B. So that was really dope. dope that dope, was really dope. Dope, dope, dope. So the next question, and the reason I, that I brought up the Super Bowl is, um, you know, how do you compete? Um, you know, a lot of the mu American music industry now is about, um, either a gimmick or, or a ratchet, for those of you who know what ratchet is, it's just um, you know, getting your name out there, doing whatever you need to do. Um, <laughs> some people, there's controversy about uh, whether they lip-synced or not. Um, what, how do you find, as, a, as, an, as, an, as an artist, particularly in, in jazz, which is not one that's embraced so much here in America as other places, how do you find that you have, what do you have to do to compete for shelf space? How do you get into, how do people get to know about you know, your music? Well, um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I produced this album independently, and it got picked up by Bluno Records. And that didn't mean that, I mean, it is an artistic album, but that didn't mean that I was sort of like insensitive to the needs of the marketplace. So I always tell people it would be a really different album without the track Trouble. Trouble's under four minutes. Trouble's like three and a half minutes. It's got a catchy hook. It's not a pop song per se, but that's the song that I did on Letterman. That's the song I did on Conan. That's 
that song that people can sort of use, you know, the American so I, radio song that people know the formula to and yeah. can identify with. I mean, it's not it's, it does, it it fits into that. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's that that was sort of my okay. I need to at least acknowledge that that's just what it is, and it's it's and it's been great. And it's also it was good for me because I feel like a lot of jazz artists just immediately say, "Ah, oh, man, that's selling out," you know. But instead, it challenged me to just write something dope in that in that way, and 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 felt um, you know felt honest. You know what I mean? So, how does it feel to to be on Blue Note? I mean, Blue, Blue Note has such a, a, a wonderfully storied history, steeped in jazz. But recently, you know, they've done such wonderful things to kind of meld the influences of contemporary everything from you know hip hop to techno and the rest of that. How does that feel? I mean, is that is it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's a dream come true. You know, like when I started making the album, you know, I had no idea where it was going to end up, and I wasn't thinking about it. But if I had to sort of pick like a dream scenario, that would have been it. You know what I mean? And um, to have it come true is is fantastic. You know, working with all the staff. I mean, all of the all of the um, artistic choices have really been you know, collaborative, really fantastic. Like the album was untouched, the artwork, Jeanette Beckman is here tonight. She took the photo, she's right here. And um, yeah, they were really supportive. Yeah. They've been, they've been really supportive um, every step of the way and, and it's fantastic. And you know, just to be like, in terms of like new signings with Van Morrison and Aaron Neville, you know, it's like, that's, crazy you know i love it I, I i'm around surrounded by artists that i love that's that's really positive i mean because so many times we 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 speak to artists and and their re relationship with their label is dysfunctional to say the least so to to really kind of be involved with a group of folks who really support and and artistically you're able to do your thing is really really kind of cool um let's talk a little bit about um over the course of your, your history, and you've done this for a really long time, what do you think were, how do you, what do you feel were really kind of your high, your high points, the things that you can, you, you reach back to and say, you know, that was something that really... Man, I mean, when your first album comes out, that's crazy, you know, because you have no idea who your audience is, you know. When I made The Dreamer, it was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to make another album in my life, you know, this is like my one chance to like say something artistically. And then when it became a success, it just, you feel like, wow, like it's like a part of you unfolding, you know, and to be able to play like Finland and like, you know what I mean, Brazil, like places that I had never been before, really showed me the power of music and um, you know, how, how it really is. It is an international language, you know. Um, you know, personal highlights, working with McCoy Tyner, that was like, I mean, I felt like being in the presence of God. Like I would, I would turn around and look at him on stage sometimes, and I swear he had like a white glow <laughs> coming off of him. And it's something like indescribable, you know, working with like him or like Pino Palladino, Chico Hamilton, Junior Mance, like real legends of music. People who have like, I mean, Junior's been playing piano since he was like eight, and he's 83 years old, you know. Yeah, he, he's been playing piano since before television was invented. You know, I can't even conceive of his life, you know. And to be around those kind of people and their kind of dedication to, um, to music and, and the way they think about music is really different. 
it's not sales and it's it's a lifetime in music. You know, it's it's a it's making a statement. It's a culture. So that's kind of you know what I'm shooting for. That's what my dream is. And um, I should also mention working with Wynn Marsalis and the Lincoln Jazz Orchestra was pretty pretty amazing. So I've been blessed. I've been really blessed. It's not a bad group of folks to have on your resume, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's dope, that's dope. Um, so talk a little bit about how, how did the, how did the McCoy Tyner thing come about? Well, um, I had done, actually, I think it was because of the, the Wynton Marsalis thing, we did the music of Billy Strayhorn, and one of the songs was Lush Life, which is on the John Coltrane, Johnny Hartman album, which is my favorite vocal jazz album of all time, and I think they heard about that, and, um, they decided they wanted to do the Hartman Coltrane album live. So they called me and actually called me on Coltrane's birthday, which just blew my mind and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in singing with McCoy Tyner? I was like, of course, you know. And our first gig was like two weeks in Japan, just doing tons of shows. And actually my wife came and we went to Kyoto and visited shrines and it just felt really spiritual. You know, working with artists like that, it really, I mean, because you get nervous, you know, like he's so famous and he's, he is, you know, one of the handful of people who have invented modern jazz, you know, the language. And he was like, you know, he'll take a solo and kind of look up and be like, I hope it wasn't too long. I didn't want to get in your way. You know, just so humble, like so humble. Something that I feel like nobody in my generation, including myself, has any concept of being that kind of humble with that, with the music. So it was, it was really, um, crazy you know and I mean I, I'll never forget we were like backstage and you know I didn't know him that well but I was I'm a huge Coltrane fan so I was like dying to ask him questions and I was like you know Mr. Tyner can I ask you what was your first like session with Coltrane you know what was it what was it like I mean he was like 20 years old and he was like oh man uh, yeah man my first session with Coltrane uh, uh, my favorite things, my favorite things. And the whole backstage just got dead quiet. We're like, man, my favorite things. Like, he just walked in the studio and just laid down like the classic jazz album of all time. He was like 20 years old. So that was pretty intense. That's dope, that's yeah. dope. Um, what is your favorite part of, you know, this, this process? I mean, you're singer, songwriter, self-produced, you know, this album. What's your, what's your favorite part of the process? I mean, honestly, Right now, you know, being able to like share with people, being able to hear about it, um, that's cool. You know, being able to hear from people in like Malaysia. I got the album and I, I love, you know, Come to My Door by Emily King and, and the connections that it makes. You know, like a lot of people had never heard of um, Hindi Zara, for example, you know. And um, there was a point when I, you know, when I had never heard of Hindi Zara. So I just love like right now, I love that it's done and I get to share with people, and they get to share with people, and it's, it feels like really, um, if it's important to other people, then I've, I've done my job, you know? I got a whole year touring, you know, we're going to Asia, uh, and then Australia, come back, do West Coast, playing Brooklyn, like, for me, that's the best part, because you actually get to see um, people. And again, thanks for coming out tonight, because it's, it's, it's great to actually meet people who are into what you do, you know what I mean? That's a special thing, especially in the digital age. So you, you spoke about, you know, McCoy being in his 20s or 20 when he made that, that fir first album. Looking at your band, you know, looks like 
the cats who gig with you aren't that much older than than that. Yeah. You know? how, did, how did you how did you hook up with the folks? How do you the, the the cats who are in the band? How did you you hook up with each of them respectively? Like, um, well, I actually went to school with uh, Solomon Dorsey on bass and Takuya Kuroda on trumpet. Actually, uh, Corey King went to the new school on trombone too. So that was a big connection. Um, they, I think they graduated. They were seniors as I was leaving, as I, as I was starting, as I was entering. But um, trying to think, Nate Smith, you know, I mean, I think like any other thing is like connections, you know. I remember going to hear Nir Felder, who's on the album, a great guitarist, and he was playing with Nate. And I was like, man, I got to get that dude's number. And uh, Nir, again, I was looking for a piano player, and he played me a bootleg. He had recorded. Casey Benjamin from um, Robert Glasper's Experiment, his gig, and Chris Bowers, who's playing on piano, was on that. He just fast forwarded it to his solo. It was like, man, check it out. And I was like, wow, this dude is, this dude is crazy. And we did a session. You know, that's the great thing about New York, too, is like you can just meet cats and say, let's have a session and, and play, you know, with so many dudes. And yeah, I mean, this band, the band you're going to hear tonight is, is so excellent. I mean, it's world class. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that point real quick, but I think we're going to open it up, if that's all right, open it up to questions, because um, I've been talking too long. Uh, just raise your hands, and the folks who have the microphones will make sure they get them to you. Um, when you were making this record, it was following the Black Magic record, and a lot of that was made with Flying Lotus. And you were saying, okay, I got to put that away, put that behind me, and then do this next phase. And you said the same thing about this record. When this record comes out and you make this statement, you'll move on to another type of sound. Now that you have this um, fan, you're getting this big fan base, and so many people are paying attention to the record and loving the record, which is great. Uh, Hope Heaven on the Ground is the next single, by the way. Um, <laughs> how are you going to deal with you know, people who want you to you know, do something that sounds a lot like No Beginning, No End because it's such a great record. Putting the pressure on me, man. <laughs> I was all relaxed when I walked in here. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, my thing is that I, do, I just do what I do. All the people who I love and admire, talking about Nina Simone, you know, John Coltrane, Marvin Gaye, you know, Miles Davis, they, they have a body of work. Everybody loves, you know, My Baby Just Cares For Me by Nina Simone. Everybody loves I Loves You Porgy or, you know, My Funny Valentine by Miles. Everybody loves My Favorite Things by Train or whatever. But that was like one day or a week of their life. And I'm just that kind of artist. You know, I'm not putting myself in the same caliber of those artists, but that's what I aspire to. So. I, honestly, I can't help it, you know, like, I already started writing the next album, like three songs in, definitely doesn't sound like this. And I, for me, it, it's, it's, it would be a disservice to go back and do something because when I make whatever period I'm in, I do it fully, you know, there's nothing, you know, like you guys are just hearing like the, like the, the little part of it, you know, like the finished part, you know, I, the two years were like, there's a whole lot of songs that, you know, got cut up and, and, and led me to get to this point. So, you know, I've definitely like exhausted it. So for me, it, it's in a scientific way, there is, there is no way to go back because I've, I've done it all. 
in in that no beginning, no end phase. And so now I'm like forced to go into whatever the next album title is gonna be. But hopefully it won't take two years this time. Yeah. Oh, good question. Well, I have a question because you said you spent the Super Bowl uh, tweeting. Yes. So um, not the whole, not the whole Super Bowl, but <laughs> a good portion of it. You don't know. <laughs> you weren't watching the game. That's I wasn't the watching the game. Yeah. So, you know the what musicians have to do these days to keep themselves relevant um, used to be the function of publicity department or your publicist. You know, and now as as I'm speaking to artists, particularly younger artists, a lot, a lot of what they communicate about what they do is about them promoting themselves, you know, socially, you know, social network and, and the rest of that. So your Facebooks and your Twitters and uh, your MySpaces back in the day, I've just aged myself. Um, it's all right, it's coming back now, so. <laughs> we'll see. Um, <laughs> tell me about how important is, is, you know, keeping your own social network game on and your own self-promotion and that kind of thing? I mean, to me, it's, that's a great question. To me, it's a part of... Um, it's part of your image, you know. I mean, excuse me. Is there like brand new white Adidas? Ah. I'm gonna talk to you later. I could get killed, get killed for just, that. Just dog my kicks. <laughs> son. Um, it's protecting your image, you know. It's controlling your voice, and I, I think it's, you know, I think it's all how you use it. You know, for me, um, I'm very comfortable now with you know my voice, social. And and I feel like it's important. You know, there's a lot of a lot of I hate to say, it, but a lot of jazz artists who I meet who are just not interested in Facebook, Twitter, any of that stuff. And it's like, dog, man, you gotta like promote your gig. And it's like, ah, oh, no, nah, no one's gonna come. It's real kind of like, and you know, it, there's just no way around it. You know, and and to me, it's one of the best gifts. I mean, it, when I was a kid, I didn't even have internet. Now, like, I can promote my shows, you know, in, in Spain. I can talk to fans in Spain. I can hear, what, yo, what's your favorite song? To me, it's really fresh. I mean, you can misuse it, Chris Brown, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm not one of them artists, so I like. <laughs> dope, dope, dope. Do we have any more questions? Because this is a, a really captive audience. Everybody's really here to talk to you, so. Hi, I'm hey. Abby from Brazil. What's uh, what's where, where in Brazil? Uh, Sao Paulo. Yeah, and we went to your um, gig at Highline Ballroom. And oh, it was thank you. amazing. It was to very the bang. nice. To the bang. To the bang. <laughs> well, my question is, you said you produced your album independently, and then you had a record deal. You went to Blown Up Records. How did that happen, and how did you feel as an artist producing it independently and then having it released by this huge record label? Um, well, this is my third label now, and um, by far the best, you know, and I'm not just saying it because they're standing right over there. Um, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like sports, you know, like you're a player, you're trying to find the right team, you know what I mean? You're a quarterback, you're a leader, um, you have your, the way that you operate and the way that you work, sometimes it's just not a good fit, you know, and to be able to find the right team, you can see you can see it immediately in sports when, oh man, they're going to the playoffs. Like you can just tell. Um, for me, you know, I had had some tough experiences with labels, and I just needed to take some time away to kind of focus back on the reason I got into music in the first place, for the love of music. 
So, you know, I believed in my music, I believed in my, my songs, I believed in the people around me, I believed in my band. And for me, it was just the, the natural progression was, okay, I'm just gonna go in the studio and make it happen. And it was really from that choice that a lot of things started to come together. I started meeting a lot of people um, like Saul Williams, like Cody Chestnut, um, like Fink and Pino Palladino and Chris Dave, who were really like, you know, artists, artists get excited when other artists believe in their work. I mean, it's really simple. And so it sort of, it sort of became very quickly bigger than me because all these other artists were like, man, Jay, I love your music, I love what you wanna do, I wanna help you make this work. Um, so I kinda got swept up in the drama of the whole thing. And by the time it got to the point where I was like actually sending out demos, you know, I already had like a whole team, including Russell Elevato, on my stuff. So I felt super confident about it. And I also didn't really wanna just give it up to anybody, you know what I mean? So. You know, Blue Note said, hey, we love it. We don't want to change anything. We want to put it out. And that was, that's what I wanted to hear. Dope, dope, dope. I know we had a question over here. I'm how you doing? Good, how you doing? Good, we love the record. Thank you. Um, I was in London during the Olympics, and I have a wonderful connection to London. Everyone knows I can't stop talking about it. Uh, you lived in London. I wanted to know what you love about London and what's your favorite place? Uh, there's so many things I love about London, you know, I mean, where, where should I begin? I'm looking at my wife. Well, every Sunday we'd go to the Columbia Road Flower Market. I mean, they have, a, they have such a market culture, you know what I mean? And, and it's a long tradition and, the, you know, um, it's a weekly thing, you know, so it's, it's not, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a whole experience, you know, you'd go can hear music, get food, and, and see the community. So I think we went pretty much every Sunday, almost for a year. Um, but the thing that first attracted me to London was how receptive they were to new music and how open they are to sort of um, saying that new artists are important. And act like, like James Blake is a perfect example. Like when he came out as a producer, everybody in the underground knew about him and they loved him right away. And I remember flying back and talking to producers over here, nobody had heard of him. And they didn't even care. They didn't even want to hear it. I was like, yo, do you want to check this James Blake? Nah, man, James Blake was at London. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, you know, now, you know, all that dubstep and all that has totally infiltrated, you know, pop music right here. But, you know, I was hearing that stuff in the club in East London years ago. So, you know, in terms of production, they're really killing it. And in terms of, um, sounds and venues as well. I really appreciate that. And they still love new music. They still look for it. They still actively search for vinyl and, and new releases. So, yeah. We have time for one more question. Um, hey man, so your uh, generation of artists has kind of invested in this whole uh, type of music that's amazing, can't really be classified by one genre like you said. Um, what was it about the time that you grew up in that's kind of developed what's going on in the music today? Um, I think there was just a lot of good music, you know, a lot of really good music. I mean, it's really interesting if you look back and just look at like by the year, by the month, like what hit the hits were or what won Grammys, 
You know what I mean? Like, if you go back in the 90s, man, it's like amazing, you know? I mean, it really is, you know? And I, I just sound really nostalgic, but the kind of, the, the level of, of bands and the minds of people like the Lauryn Hills and the Kurt Cobains and, you know, I mean, I took them for granted completely. It's like, yeah, of course, Beastie Boys is out, it's new, it's killing, whatever. New Tribe Called Quest, yeah. You know what I mean? It was just like every album seemed like it was like an instant classic, and it was. So I think, um, you know, talking about Robert Glasper and all these guys, you know, we just we just soaked up so much stuff. Um, it wasn't really sort of segregated in what we listened to. We just sort of liked everything because everything was really good. And I, I think it goes back to the presentation in the 90s was very open. It was like, here's a new band, we're gonna promote them, and they're great, you know what I mean? I mean, demographically, there's no reason why I should have liked 10,000 10, Maniacs. But I'm a huge Natalie Merchant fan because I heard it, because I saw Unplugged, MTV Unplugged, and was like, wow, she's amazing, you know what I'm saying? And I feel like now, certain artists get pushed to certain demographics in a different way. I'm not saying the 90s was perfect, but that was like a, a difference between then and now. So I think that was our last question. Um, Jose James, newest album, No Beginning, No End on Blue Notes Records. If you have not check it, checked it out, go cop that joint from iTunes. I'm sorry, please go to iTunes and purchase the album. <laughs> You're going to bless us with your joints. Let's get it going. Thank you. Thank you. You've yeah. been a wonderful audience. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage, Jose James. What's up, y'all? Uh, come on, really? Wow. Wow. Corey King on the trombone. Takuya Kuroda on the trumpet, Solomon Dorsey on bass and vocals, Nate Smith on the drums, Chris Bowers on the keys. This one's called It's All Over Your Body. I won't stand, you wanna go on. I can't wait for it anymore, no baby. And all the time that, the time that, the time that I used to know Gone away like a river flow Yeah, said It's all over, it's all over, it's all over your body I, I need someone like you To understand my heart, and my soul It's Trouble, 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 and all my life they call on me to struggle, 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 struggle. Maybe all my life I've been waiting, wonder why is it now the time? Make a dream arise. I carry you inside, burning deeply with desire. Burn your blazing fire, tremble through the night. Love, I already know. Oh, your face is already shown. 
If you ever feel the bone, baby Oh, I just want you to know It's alright, it's alright, it's alright Yeah, yeah Oh, you can come to my door Thank you so much. Shout out to Emily King. Solomon Dorsey on the bass. On the horns, Takuya Kuroda. Corey King. Nate Smith on the drums. Chris Bowers on the piano. I'm Jose James, y'all. Thank you so much. This is no beginning, no end. We got a show coming up in Brooklyn. I hope to see y'all soon, man. Peace and love.